0: Hello, friends, and welcome to the What If Project. Uh, My name is Glenn, and it is great to have you along for the ride. So, uh, this is episode number 25, and it's the first episode of a two-part series that I'm calling Instant Replay, uh, where we're looking back at the two most downloaded episodes of Season 1 and uh, just kind of replaying it. So part of the reason, why am I doing this? Well, part of the reason why I'm doing this is because it's crunch time for my dissertation. As some of you know, I'm in the final leg of the doctoral program at Alliance Theological Seminary, and I am due to graduate in May. But before I can graduate, they tell me that my dissertation needs to be handed in. Um, It's coming along beautifully. I'm 140 pages in, but I've got to edit it. I've already edited it once. But then, once you edit it, you got to hand it in and you got to edit it again. Then I got to send it to my editor who reads it for grammar. He sends it back to me again and I get edited again. I got to have all that done by February 1st. So I have to hand it back in by January 25th. Um, it's going to be read again and given back to me. Then I got a week to make more changes to it. It is just an unbelievably, ridiculously busy uh, couple of weeks. So. Uh that is why uh, we are doing this Instant Replay. That's part of the reason why we're doing this Instant Replay um, series, looking back over the two most downloaded episodes of Season 1. And uh, the other reason is because these two episodes are just a lot of fun. Um, I sat down with two individuals this week. We're going to hear again from Dr. Alexander Shia as he talks to us about the four Gospels, and then next week we're going to talk to uh, look back at the episode where I talked to Dr. Phil Snyder, who talked to us about um, LGBTQ inclusion and how to read the Bible uh, through an inclusive and welcoming lens. Uh, Those were the two most downloaded episodes of season one. Um, Dr. Alexander Shia's was the second most, and uh, Dr. Phil Snyder's was the first. So, all of that to say, Uh, I'm going to be quiet, and I'm just going to kind of roll the tape and uh, go back in time a little bit and listen to Dr. Alexander Shia talk to us about the four Gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So much love to you, and uh, be encouraged.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to the What If Project podcast. Uh, My name is Glenn Sieper and it is an incredible day to have you here today. Uh, Let me tell you, you have chosen the right day to drop by because we are all in for an amazing treat as I am sitting down with the one and only and one of my new favorite people, uh, Dr. Alexander Shia. Dr. Shia, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's great to have you.
2: It's great to be here. It's always an honor and I'm just delighted to be asked and Glad that we could get the time set aside to do this.
1: Absolutely. It was a little bit of a, a struggle to make it work on both ends, but we did
2: it. We did it. We did it. We did it. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, I'm, so, for I'm, our li- I'm not leaving the planet, but later today, I'm leaving the country. <laughs> you are leaving the country for, for a little <laughs> uh, while, too, right? It. Not because of your podcast. <laughs> He's like, I've had enough. <laughs> I'm out. <Yes. laughs>
1: Uh, so for our listeners, uh, just real quick, kind of give some context. I came across Dr. Shia's work on Rob Bell's podcast, which is called the Rob uh, probably about a year ago. And I became like absolutely obsessed with the stuff that he, he shared. And as we're going to see, he has a really unique and I would say powerful way of talking about the four gospels of the new Testament. So we're talking Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And honestly, in my four years of Bible college in seemingly eternity and seminary. Uh, I've literally never heard anything like it before. And uh, then I heard him speak on the Deconstructionist podcast and then had the opportunity to hear him speak live back at the Wild Goose Festival in July. And once I I saw him live and I saw him speaking about the Bible and just the passion on his face, um, I really could not get enough. So Dr. Shai, I went out and I bought your book, Heart and Mind. Like as soon as I got self-service back from the the festival. I stopped my car on Amazon and I ordered it and it was there uh, shortly after I got home. Uh, but I'm like three quarters of the way through and uh, it is fantastic. But before we dive into that, maybe you could just give us um, like a few moments to introduce yourself to our listeners. How would you describe your work? Who are you? What do you do? What makes you tick? All that fun kind of stuff.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I probably have a little bit of an unusual experience uh, life story because i'm first generation lebanese my Mm. grandparents and parents came to this country um i just two days ago was at ellis island and was moved to tears more than i ever imagined uh, because they did come in that great immigration wave of the late 1800s early 1900s and and then for some reason economic they went to birmingham alabama and that's where i was born and raised But in those days, it was a difficult experience to be a Lebanese immigrant in the South uh, at a time where the KKK was bearing down on all immigrants as well as the black community. Mm. And I grew up Roman Catholic or Eastern Rite Roman Catholic in Birmingham, Alabama, of Lebanese descent, so sort of a minority of a minority of a minority. And I was given the name Alexander at birth, which was the name so designated by my family to be the next in the line of priest. I come from about 14 generations of priests back in Lebanon, all named Alexander. Hmm. So I was raised uh, with the obligation to be a priest. And it sort of fit me because I had a spiritual bent and I was really involved in spirituality, psychology, religion. Uh, I negotiated with my father, sort of like verbal arm wrestling, uh, mm. to go to college rather than go directly to seminary. Greatest gift of my life was I ended up at the University of Notre Dame in the early 1970s. Yep, don't count the years. <laughs> uh, and one, when I was there, what I discovered there in the theology department just totally spun my world. And my, all of my work really comes from those early seeds that I was given back in the back at Notre Dame in the early seventies. So, for me, what happened was is that as I grew up, my grandparents couldn't read or write, and uh, but they would tell stories like other people would would be reading fairy tales or folk tales. Or um, my grandparents didn't have any of that information. What they had were the memorized stories from the Bible and from the gospels. Mm. And they would chant them to me because in the Middle East, if something is sacred, you chant it, you sing it, you never say it. Mm. To say something, to just simply read a text in the Middle East is uh, considered uh, to uh, to uh, not honor it. Anyway, I, I really learned something that I, I learned up. Uh, uh, i don 't know a force a reality that was underneath the words. the words are important, but there 's also another reality there uh, and then I go to Notre dame and i 'm learning i'm i 'm in my theology work and i 'm in scripture work and i 'm learning all this information about the scriptures, but none of it it was interesting, mm-hmm. but none of it really held my heart mm. it 's like i i couldn 't find Something in it that in, in a time of trouble would really, uh, really give me comfort and strength. Yeah. And if, as the book opens, I, I tell the story of how as a seven-year-old boy in Birmingham, Alabama, we stood outside of my grandmother's house after it had been firebombed by the KKK in uh, the late 50s. And the, the power of that story for me is not the horror of the bombing uh, and the tremendous loss that we all lost in losing the home. But uh, five days later, we were at a at Sunday dinner, which we were always at Sunday dinner together with my grandmother until I went to college. And that Sunday, we were sitting on card tables and folding chairs and Um, and she said grace as she always does and then she stopped and she looked around the room and her glasses kind of went down her nose down the bridge of her nose and she looked over her glass around the room she looked at every one of us and then very quietly and very insistently she said no hate no hate no hate Mm. and it was one of those moments where the many years of sitting on her lap and hearing the gospels chanted, it was like, where does such power and strength come from? Mm. And I know that I, I wanted, I wanted that reality in my life. Mm. So I, I had as much of a faith crisis as I've ever, as I've ever had. And I I, um, I, I didn't, I don't have the great faith crisis that many people do today. And I understand why you, why they do. But for me, it was at Notre Dame, I suddenly discovered that I couldn't find the gospel that I knew. Uh. And I was hearing about all the committees that wrote this and they wrote that and the arguments that they would have. And somehow I was beginning to, I mean, not somehow, I was beginning to distrust. It's like, where is the core beauty and truth of this text that will still my critical mind not not that i want to put uh, it's like i always want to use my critical mind but when the gospel gets challenged to the level that it's been challenged of late um it's very 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 difficult yeah because you really really begin to wonder well are there better stories of jesus Does, you know did did was there some critical wisdom that was repressed or covered over or yeah. Did we end up with these four gospels because people were trading them like baseball cards? Kind of an old metaphor. Yeah, sure. Uh, but but that was, it was like, it, I was really unsettled by what I discovered in my theology courses at Notre Dame. And I started a search. Mm. Uh, I wanted a way that I could bring all the beautiful power of my critical mind back together to a devout heart. Mm. And I didn't want a church or a community to ask me to check my brain or check my heart at the door. And it, it seems like, uh, for me, that's been my experience, is that uh, communities were either one or the other. They were either very devout, but I couldn't have a critical conversation, yeah. or I could have a very critical conversation. And if I if I really showed my heart, it was like, oh, that's that's kind of naive. It's like one end of the spectrum or the other. Yeah. Yeah. So then, what happened for me is well, there's, there's one more piece to the story at Notre Dame, and that is that there was this really wild, passionate, small male professor who came every spring to teach for two weeks in the theology department, and you had to be an upperclassman to get into his seminaries. Huh. And his name was Joseph Campbell. This is before Joseph Campbell knew who Joseph Campbell was. So he <laughs> long before he was sort of discovered. Sure. And I didn't, I mean, there, there was no, you know, uh, um, his, his personality was just who he was, and he was just this wild, passionate, eloquent speaker. And what he taught me began to spin my world. Uh. Because his, his major premise was that every great world story, which is deeply true, has four parts to it. Hmm. and he would then go through and uh, he would go through all these books of the Bible and he would show the four part story and he would show the four parts of the story inside of each gospel. Hmm. But I kept thinking, is there something of his teaching, which is a reason a, a, a rational, logical reason why we ended up with these four gospel texts. Yeah. There's some connection between this idea that all great stories must be told in four parts and the four Christian gospels. And for some reason he never went there. He, he never went to combining the four texts into so, sort of a mega story. Huh. And, and I, so I started a search in uh, 1972. I started this search just on this intuition that there was some connection between his idea about the four, story, the four parts to the great story and the reason that we ended up with the four Gospels. One of the things that helped me that I don't think Campbell ever knew is that um, early Christianity for the first 500 years always read the Gospels in an identifiable sequence. Mm-hmm. And the sequence is not quite the sequence we have in the Bible. But I was like, okay, if if there's a key to the four texts as part of one story, then the key may be found in this ancient sequence. Because they they didn't think of them as four separate texts. They never used the word gospel plural. Mm -hmm. It was just the gospel in four accounts. And it was, it, as you read these old texts, you really get the sense that um, they saw this as, as an integral whole. And of course, and it's true that we can look at the text as the four life stories of Jesus. And, I, sure. and this, that, nothing I'm saying um, is going to counter that. But the early church really treated them as in my mind they saw them as some sort of a continuous story Hmm. although at the level of history that doesn't make sense Hmm. so it's like how how could this work how could how could these four um fit together and i you know like i felt like a long time like cinderella's uh, stepsisters i was trying to make, I was trying to force it. I was trying to force the foot into the shoe. It's yeah. I'm going to get the goal. I'm going to make it's this like, work. <laughs> going to make this work. And I I hope I had enough integrity. It's like after a while, we're like back off now. It's like, you've got to force it. It, it. This isn't it yet. Yeah. So I, I kept praying yeah. and I kept doing research. And then the the final piece of a long journey of, of putting this together god leading me to put this together was a book that was published in in uh, the year
1: 1999
2: Hmm. and it was the author is the reverend robin griffith jones who's an anglican scripture scholar at oxford and he wrote this book called the four witnesses Hmm. and i was leaving to go on sabbatical And my friend who worked in a bookstore literally came driving up, parking the car in front of my car so I couldn't drive off, jumps out of the car, hands me this book, (laughs) and says, you know, have a good sabbatical. I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, you know, the last thing I really need, Bob, is another book. That's right. I got enough of that. I I got out of the car, put the book on the driver's seat, and got back in and sat on it. So a couple of months go by, and I'm feeling like I've I've got to read at least some of this book and write Bob a a very gracious note of of thanks for his generosity. I've been out hiking on this day, and it was a a very long hike, and I got home that night, and my my body was tired, but my brain wasn't. Mm -hmm. All right, great moment to read a book in Christology. This will yeah. this will do it absolutely. <laughs> so I sat down and I opened this book, and Glenn, the hair on the back of my head. Mm. I mean, it was one of those. It was like this electrical charge, so much so that I didn't sleep for two days. Wow. Um, because what Robin Griffith has done with his book is he summarizes the history of the community at the point that we believe the gospel was revealed to them. Mm. And he summarizes their dilemma. Mm. And then he, in his book, goes on to talk about the names of Jesus in relationship to what they were wrestling with. I'm looking at it as a spiritual director and someone who knows the spiritual classics I'm also looking at it as a clinical psychologist trained in trauma work. Mm. And I'm looking at it with 35 years of hermeneutics and the rigor of all of that. And the final piece is I'm looking at it going back to the ancient Christians reading the gospel in a sequence. And there it was. And it's like as the door flew open, the, the roof flew off. Uh, suddenly, the text changed. It's this with the same words, mm. but an entirely different impact. It's awesome. And what I saw that night, and have spent now eighteen years trying to to study it and refine it and say it in ways that people can perhaps use it, mm. is that the text of Matthew is the entire text of Matthew is about the question of how we face change. Hmm. And one of the ways I like to say it is, is that the evangelist, whoever the evangelist was, uh, who this text was inspired or revealed to, um, was gathering together all the life stories and teachings of Jesus about how you face change. Hmm. And that question of how, through the power of Jesus the Christ, you face change Becomes the, the, becomes the thread, the glue underneath this text. Hmm. And that's Campbell's first part of the story. The first part of the story is you, you hear the summons to a new journey. Hmm. And that's and part of the human journey, right? It's part of the human journey. Yeah. I mean, Cam, Campbell's has got all these volumes. He goes over it, all, the, all the world's great stories, mythologies, hmm. and shows this same pattern. And he he keeps saying, he keeps teaching us, don't get caught by the words. Look at the pattern. The words are going to be different. The story is going to be different. But it's this pattern that is so deep in every human. Yeah. And that we instinctively know that if these four parts aren't there, we don't feel satisfied when we get to the end of the story. Mm -hmm. And his work has been so important that most movie scriptwriters, Broadway play people, everybody has made their way to Campbell hmm. to learn about the, the, the underneath pattern that has to be there to satisfy the human heart.
1: Hmm.
2: Uh, so this, so en- yeah, this entry
1: into change, is that, um, is that like major life change? Is it, um, could it be like as simple as the change of a job? Could it be as big as a change of, um, like life in terms of like moving away from an addiction, like that kind of thing, is it like what would be
2: the change that we would be looking at in the gospel? Yeah, I'm sitting here nodding my head vigorously, yes, and realizing your readers can't see. It that. <laughs> That's <You're>, right. <laughs> you can't see that. Um, yes, yes, and yes. It's, okay. it's everything from the most dramatic change um, um, down to the, the most simple changes in our life. They, they all. I mean, they, they have a different emotional, intellectual impact on us, but the underneath structure of change is change. Sure. Got it. I think, uh, I think yeah. that's helpful
1: because I think, you know, you were talking before we started recording that there's, you know, I know this is a relatively new podcast. I don't really know my listeners yet, but I have a general idea of the audience that's out there. And I think the larger part of the audience is probably in the midst of some kind of a change. I know there's no specific people who have lost loved ones recently. They're learning how to cope without them. Uh, There's other people who have migrated jobs. They're starting something completely new that they've never done before. Um, Other people like myself uprooted their family and moved to another part of the country. So there's a lot of change out there. So I think just that that piece right away is going to resonate with people um, as we jump in from there. So uh, I'll let you continue from there. But Matthew's about change, you
2: said, right? Right. Matthew, okay. So I think I think um, uh, I think let, let's do sort of the over, uh, overview of the map. Yeah, we'll come back and 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 talk about this more deeply. Um, so Campbell would talk about that the second part of the journey is after you hear the summons to this uh, to and, and journey is really a name for for transformation and growth. Hmm. But when you hear the summons to this the next place you go is not very comfortable. It's, it's kind of wild and woolly. Mm. Uh, Campbell talks about it's the place of tremendous trial and obstacles. And so uh, the, the text that the early church so rightfully determined for this part of the journey is uh, the Gospel of Mark, or what I call how we move through times of great suffering, mm. great trials, great suffering. Uh, the next part of the journey that Campbell would describe is that then you come into the gift or he used the word boon or gift. I use the word awareness or insight, uh, sort of a perhaps a visionary experience, perhaps some sort of an ecstatic experience, perhaps experience of tremendous deep peace and, um, and for this experience, uh, the early church chose the Gospel of John, mm-hmm. the question of how do we receive joy and know the meaning of joy? It's not just how we receive it, but also that, that the experience has meaning for us in our life. And the fourth part of Campbell's uh, description uh, was that now you've, you've begun the journey, you've endured the trials and the obstacles you received the gift or the new awareness and he would say now you've got to come back to everyday life or you've got to come back to community and you've got to do something Mm. and this is so important because um the the third part of the journey getting the awareness is it's a really critical piece but unless you do something with it it really isn't much use Mm. and uh so the early church discerned the text of luke acts mm. as this fourth part of the journey in terms of coming back and in, in my language how do we mature in service mm. uh, service to our god service to each other service to self mm. so so there it was that As I was reading Robin Griffith Jones and his description of the historical community at the point the gospel came to them, they were dealing with these questions. Matthew's community, Antioch was dealing with the question of how do we face a moment of tremendous change? Hmm. And Mark's community in Rome was facing execution. And how do we move through a time of, of, Great suffering. Mm. John's community in Ephesus was facing a moment of ecstasy and that ecstasy was being used to break the community apart rather than bring it together. Mm. And again the the text of John and then finally Luke's text um, written from Antioch much like the letters of Paul as a a book to be taken around to all the emerging Christian communities in the Mediterranean, because we were all facing the same question at this point. Mm. Uh, We, we, we had now come out of our mother Judaism and we had to stand before the emperor as illegals. Mm. And Luke's text was, what's going to be the way that we're going to offer the good news Mm. Uh, we are not going to offer the good news with a sword. We're going to offer the good news uh, with the strength of our tongue and the grace of our heart, Mm. but we're going to offer it uh, realizing that this is going to be a long, slow process of heart by heart, by heart, by heart, by heart, by heart. by heart. We're not going to try to transform the Roman empire. We're not going to try to hit a home run. Uh, we're going to do the Luke's whole text is about what are you doing right now? What small actions can you do right now to touch another heart? Mm -hmm. Just touch one heart, turn one heart. And, and the, the, the practice of Luke over 300 years, 300 years changed the value system of the Roman empire so that the Roman empire could no longer support. The value system of the emperor. Hmm. It we we changed it from within without a physical fight. Anyway, so so there so there we have it, and th- there we have the ancient church reading sequence. Yeah, we have now. Why they placed Matthew first because the text of Matthew is Jesus is teaching us about how to face change. Why did they place Mark second because? It's Jesus' teaching about how to move through the valley of the shadow of death by the power of the resurrection. Mm. And placed John third, because John's the text of receiving the new gift, the new insight, the new awareness. And placed Luke fourth, not third. I mean, John was third and Luke was fourth. Yeah. but Because the fourth part is service, 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 service. Yeah. Wow.
1: Um, I love the one piece that you said that. Um The important piece is once we move beyond that third piece where there's a uh, perhaps the gift or the revelation, uh going into that fourth piece of actually doing something with it is the key because so often I mean even like in school and stuff like in seminary and even in church, like you you hear a sermon, a message or a teaching, and you you theorize about it all day and you think about all these wonderful things that you've learned and you know, very rarely, sometimes we don't take it to the next level and actually do something with it in our lives yeah. to better our family, or our community, or ourselves, or whatever. So that's a, that's a big piece.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and just um, as, as a small distraction there, um, I've just finished my next book, which is about returning from Camino, uh, returning from Camino which is right. this pilgrimage across Spain. Sure. Um, it's the same issue. People think that the Camino ends when you get to someplace in Spain. Yeah. That's that's half the Camino. Right. <laughs> uh, the, the whole reason as a spiritual walk, the whole reason for doing the Camino is to have something in you awakened. Yeah. That then you that then come home from and begin to reshape your life. Hmm. And it's like if, if you don't come home and reshape your life, well, you had a nice walking holiday and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But, sure. but that's the pilgrimage is not about over there somewhere. Pilgrimage is about about really reshaping um, how you live, your value system, the way you serve, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, it's like a retreat. It's like going on a missions
1: trip or something, like, like a short-term mission trip. It's not necessarily just about what you do in that space, but it's about the change that experience, you experience inside that you bring home with you and uh, do
2: something with. Yeah, That's, that's really good. Um, one I, of the things, think, yeah, go ahead, please. Well, I, I, uh, I think that one of the things that we do not realize, we have not spoken enough of, is is that early Christianity was a whole new level of human family organization, which the planet had not seen up to this yeah. point, or if it had seen, they died out and they didn't leave a record behind. Yeah, but we do not have a pan tribal community before Christianity in the first century, hmm. uh, and diversity is our hallmark. Yeah, we 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 are the spiritual tradition that opened our doors to everyone and said, come and that's radical folly. Yeah. And here we are with sort of 2000 years later and we're back at the same place. Mm. Um, And we just need to return to this, to the practices of early Christianity and how to resolve this. Yeah. That's really good. Um,
1: One of the things that kind of piqued my interest while you were talking is um, a little bit about the gospel of, of Mark um, because you talked about how Mark is about, uh, kind of facing the obstacles. It's about the, the storm that comes when you begin that journey of change. And it piqued my interest for two reasons, because number one, I think that's just something everybody can relate to is the storms and the different things that are going on in life. But the second thing is that, uh, right now in the what if project, one of the things that we're exploring is the book of Mark. Mm. Uh, so from September through December, uh, we're kind of journeying through the book. I'm blogging through it a little bit. Um, using your book as one of the bigger resources for it. Um, We have an online study group that's meeting, and we're doing uh, NT Wright's uh, Mark for Everyone, so we're kind of using that as a resource as well. Uh, So I was wondering if you could just spend a little bit of uh, time maybe just taking us a little bit deeper into that context of Mark specifically and maybe showing us a little bit about how understanding that context of what was going on in the world at the time, like with Nero's fire and all that kind of stuff, like, how does that influence the way that we read the text and then kind of bring about um, that uh, propelling for change that you were talking about earlier?
2: Okay, let, let me just sort of wade in here. and it's a, I love to talk about Mark, so you you yeah. got to sort, of, <laughs> sort of put some parameters around it. Um, because Mark is the first gospel text ever composed, hmm. and Mark creates a new art form which the world had never seen before. Yeah. There's nothing in literature in any other in any other tradition mm. uh, uh, which is written in the way that that the Gospel of Mark is written. And the way I describe it is, you've got um, the the first eyewitness of Peter, yeah. who saw the who saw Jesus in the flesh and had all these tremendously powerful stories in Rome as the Bishop of Rome, mm. and then you have in Rome Paul. Uh, in house prison. And Paul is the person who didn't see the historical Jesus. Mm. And Paul is the person who had the most powerful impact on the first century because, uh, and I know this from my own work uh, in organizational development. Uh, If an organization, and I don't want to reduce Christianity to only an organization, but this might be helpful to understand Um, Your organization is going to depend on your second and your third generation teacher or leader, Mm -hmm. because the first generation teacher or leader around the charismatic founder um, are very poor teachers. And the problem is they have all the mixture of the personality and the way a person tells a story and the way they laugh and the way they eat, the way they walk and and. Um, the discussions that they had, et cetera, it's all there and it's all jumbled up. Yeah. And if I try to tell you about that and about the power that this person had on me, mm-hmm. you're going to say, well, yeah, you know, Alexander, that's really nice. You were there. What does that have to do with me? Right. Sure. Yeah. That's the power of Paul. Paul comes along without having any of those stories and without having with his outer eyes seeing any of that reality Mm. and he has an internal experience of jesus the christ that reforms his life and gives him an immediate experience to say that all the stories that peter and james and john and mary magdalene and whoever else told told you about those are stories in time that are eternal Mm -hmm. And because they're eternal, you have as much access to them right now as they did. In fact, Paul would say you have more access. Mm -hmm. So what Paul does is Paul infuses how Christianity is not a religion of time, that Christianity is a religion about how the eternal lives in time, Mm -hmm. and that the gospel text should not be told as a time-bound history lesson but rather you use, um, you use a moment in time to tell an eternal story. Huh. So he would, he, because of his experience, he could take the historical eyewitness of the original ones and open it up in a way to help people walk into it right now, mm. to know that it wasn't a story of 30 years ago or 40 years ago, it wasn't a story back in Palestine that this is happening right here, right now, this moment. Huh. So when the first gospel is composed, you've got Peter and Paul in Rome uh, before both are killed. And so you've got the Roman commun- the Christian Jewish community in Rome who are understanding because they've got the two uh, core fundaments of the early church right there. And they have the historical record from Peter, and they have the eternal record from Paul, and they understand that a gospel story is not going to be be told as a historical story. It's going to be told as as an eternal story, as a present moment here and now story. And so therefore, the evangelist, whoever the evangelist Mark is in Rome, takes the events from Palestine and puts them, situates them in the heart, in the streets of the Jewish Christian community in the midst of this mini Holocaust, Mm -hmm. having been condemned to die by Nero falsely accused for having set the great city of Rome on fire. Yeah. So it's, it's um, so that now we can understand how Mark opens. Mm. The the text of Mark opens with the story of John the Baptist. I like to call it a meditation on John the Baptist. Yeah. Well, the the Christian Jewish community in Rome is waiting for a Roman soldier to come and knock on the door. And when that knock comes, they're going to have to answer the question, do you believe in the Christus, the Christ? And if you say yes, you and your family, down to your grandchildren. Are going to be seized, taken to the Circus Maximus, and killed. Mm. Um, All of this is happening because the Roman Senate has turned against Nero, and Nero's got to have a scapegoat to save his own self. Mm. And his scapegoat ends up being the Jewish Christians. Mm. Well, they know that they are in a wilderness. They know that they are like into that desert uh, where, the, where their ancestors wandered for 40 years and died. Mm. They know that they are John the Baptist, who was horribly killed off of the whim of a drunken governor. Mm. And so this meditation on John the Baptist is, uh, this too is our story. This is what we, we are being asked to proclaim something uh, in this desert. And we, are, we also know that we are likely to not physically uh, uh, get out of this desert. That The end of our, the physical end of our lives is, is the most likely result of this moment. But there's another piece that undergirds all of Mark, which is um, every one of these gospels is not a gospel about a story of resurrection at the end of the text. The whole gospel is the practice of resurrection. Mm. All of these gospels were written to baptize Christian communities who already had, hopefully, the experience of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in their hearts. And the gospel text is saying, here's how you practice resurrection in the midst of this dilemma and For the Roman Christians in Rome, the Jewish Christians in Rome, a a moment of of extremists as they are really in a mini Holocaust, Mm. and we know that uh, that the the power of the resurrection is holding this community because the the little historical record that we have of how they died on the floor of the Circus Maximus, a horrible death was that the Romans citizens, the Roman senators that came out to watch their death got bored because they came to see people scream and beg for their life Mm. and it said that the Christians died with great serenity and nobility Mm. I want to suggest that you can't do that you can't play act knowing the resurrection in your heart but when you know it you can face such a horrible moment yeah Because you know that this is not the end. Yeah. You know that you're giving your life for something greater. Hmm. I mean,
1: kind of like what your your grandmother when she was over that dinner, saying no, um, no revenge or no anger. um, She got that. That was a deep seated um, experience for her.
2: Yeah. Hmm. So, like, go further into Mark's text, and I think, it's the four, I think it's the fourth chapter where we have the first crossing of the sea. Yes. At night. Yeah. And uh, look, read that story through the extremis of the Christian community in Rome. Uh, first of all, the, the, the Sea of Galilee, um, we might better call that the Sea of Chaos. We might mm-hmm. better call that the Sea of Terror. Um, the Jewish people saw the Sea of Galilee as a tomb uh, hundreds perhaps thousands of Jews died in the storms that came up on that sea and they drowned hmm. uh, no sailor or fisherman would ever go out on that sea at night time it's utter falling hmm.
1: uh,
2: what does Jesus do? Jesus puts <laughs> the disciples in the boat at night Yeah. Can you? Can we hear the Jewish Christians in Rome? We're in a boat at night, and yeah. now the storm is hit, mm. and just as this text says, and the waves are crashing, and the boat is going down, mm. and and where, um, where is Jesus sleeping? But <laughs> in the back, in the back, which, right. is, which is the part of the boat that rocks the least? Sure. And then sleeping, and then the evangelist adds one more little detail, and his head is resting on a cushion. (laughs) Well, I mean, how many of us can't relate to this in terms of, I'm in this horrible place, and we're where the, is my God? Yeah, sure. Wake up. I mean, hear, hear Peter in this text cry out, wake up, do something. We're going down. Yeah, The ship is going down. The community is going down. The church is going down. The world is going down. Wake up. Mm. And And Jesus does wake up. And Jesus does still the storm. And I would suggest to you that Uh, The greater storm that Jesus is trying to still is the inner storm. Uh. And then says to the disciples and to us, where's your faith? Uh. Where's your faith? Don't you know I'm here? Uh. Don't you know that there is something in this storm which is for your growth? Uh. Where's your faith? So there, there are four crossings in Mark. And Jesus gets increasingly impatient with the disciples who want to be taken out of the storm. Yeah. But the truth of the second path, the truth of the second great part of the journey is we have to go into the storm. And this is this, I mean, if I had, were going to preach to most Christian communities today or to any of us, stop praying to get out of the storm. Yeah. Go into it. The Christ is here with us. There is something in this storm which is for our further holiness. Yeah. Um, There is something in the storm which is about not just rearranging the chairs on the Titanic. Mm. There's something in the storm right now which is about taking all the furniture out of the room. There's something in the storm about bringing us back to I don't know. There's Mm. something in the storm which is about holy uncertainty. Because when you're in this part of the journey with God, God does not want you to know about tradition, does not want you to affirm yesterday. God doesn't want you to argue against tradition, but God wants to say in this moment, I have to stand before you not knowing teach me deeper. Yeah. So it seems like, um, just from what
1: you're back backtracking a little bit that, um, the apostle Paul is the one who really taught us to read the gospel story in this way, right? Because sometimes you hear the stories of old and like you said, you think, well, I wasn't there. You were there and that's really great for you. But what about me? But Paul, like you said, wasn't there. And so he's probably the one that we can relate to the most in that sense, because he showed us how to bring the gospel story forward into the present time and show it as an eternal um, an eternal peace. And so would you say that like a, a good way then to read um, the gospel stories is to do like what these readers of Mark, for instance, were doing that maybe when they read or chanted the story of the storm uh, in their mind, they were thinking of Nero. They were thinking of that knock on the door. They were thinking of, um, you know, this is our boat. Is Jesus here with us in our boat? Is he sleeping in our boat? Like, is that a, a proper way for us to read the text today? To bring our problems. to I would it. Say
2: a little bit more uh, immediate, Glenn. Yeah, I don't think for the first hearers of this text that they needed any translation.
1: Mm.
2: Um, they knew because both Peter and Paul were there, and they had been formed in hearing the story of Jesus, not as historical, but as present moment here and now. Mm. And they certainly didn't need anyone to, to tell them that they were in the boat at night uh, on the Sea of Terror. Yeah. Uh, Wondering where their God was. Sure. The The question for us is, can can we um, open these texts up? And it's why I like to widen out the name of Galilee mm. to the Sea of Terror. Where in your life right now? Where in the world, where in your life right now are, are you in the Sea of Terror? Where in your life right now do you feel like you're going down? Yeah. Do you feel like your country is going down? Do you feel like the planet is going down? Mm. Um, and that this, that the text of Mark is about teaching us, uh, first to have hope, but then to move beyond hope to trust and to move beyond trust to knowing. Mm. Hope is a developmental virtue. It's not a place to stop. It's a place to start. Mm. And by the time we get to Luke's text, we'll see how hope has transitioned and grown into knowing, Mm. which is which is Mary's place in, in the Lucan text is, you know, in the midst of all the horrible stuff that's going on right now, Mary knows the promise of God. And because she knows the promise of God, her heart can stay more even. Sure. She, she knows that God's going to win the victory if she just does her small part. Hmm. Anyway, but it's, it's this journey that we make through the gospels. And, uh, so, so much of Mark is about our learning to have hope and some sense of trust. Hmm. Uh, then God will bring us to the grace of knowing in God's time. Sure. Huh. And, and I, I, well, I could go on and on, but um, <laughs> I, I love that uh, Psalm 22 um, is on the lips of Jesus as Jesus is dying in the text of, of Mark, also in the text of Matthew, but primarily in the text of Mark and And that we need to reinterpret psalm twenty two not reinterpret, but we need to understand that psalm twenty two in the first century of Judaism and for a couple of hundred years before that was the prayer that every devout Jew wanted to have on their lips as they died uh. and that that so that that Jesus in Mark is not praying. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus and Mark is praying the first line of Psalm 22. And the evangelist didn't need, for for a Jewish community uh, that was becoming Christian, didn't need to put the entire text of Psalm 22 in the gospel any more than if we heard a Christian dying today saying, Our Father who art in heaven. We know the rest of the prayer. And if you read the entirety of Psalm 22, it moves through abandonment and despair and agony Mm. to praise and equanimity and glory for a God who is and who always saves. Mm. So if you're going to read, you know, if you're going to read that beautiful text, powerful text of Jesus on the cross in Mark, Read the entirety of Psalm 22 and know that Jesus on the cross in Mark is not dying in agony. Jesus on the cross of Mark is dying in the nobility of suffering. Mm. In the same way that the early Christians are going to die at the Circus Maximus are being asked to access that same nobility of suffering. Mm. That though, yes, in this moment I am being tormented, that is not the deepest truth. Yeah. The truth under this, underneath this, is love and grace and righteousness and justice. And though I cannot see it now, it will be. That is the truth of all time. Hmm. So it, it's just it, it changes, Mark, from this uh, from a, a gospel that we might look at and go, our our human God dies feeling abandoned. Uh, Our human God knows the experience of abandonment, not as an ending place, but as a journey place. Uh, What's so powerful about that Psalm 22 is because it starts with all the emotions that we often feel when we're in a, when we're in a time of great struggle and pain. We do feel despair. We do feel abandonment. We do feel, read the text about, about the sharp teeth of the gnawing dogs. And that's exactly how the early Christians were dying at the circus Maximus. They were beaten by dogs. But please, please, please read the beauty of the last three stanzas of Psalm 22.
1: So you saying that Mark's readers would have understood that, without having, having it right in front of them, they would have known that, Well, Jesus is saying this on the cross, but he's really referring to the
2: uh, entirety of the psalm, not just this one piece. Right, because it was standard Jewish practice to know Psalm 22 by heart Hmm. and to pray your whole life that you might pray it as you die. And I probably, I'm going to make a very educated guess here, but Hmm. probably these first Christian martyrs dying at the Circus Maximus in Rome in 64, 65 are praying Psalm 22. Hmm.
1: Why do you think, why would Mark only put, why would he choose to put just that one line in there as opposed to um, maybe a larger chunk of the psalm? Is, um, it for, is it just for the sake of his narrative, the way that he's telling the story? Um, just curious, that just popped into my mind while you were talking.
2: Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, Mark, Mark's text is utterly brief and stark yeah and just I love you know. the, the, it has this immediacy because of the starkness yeah um I simply think that it was uh, it was unnecessary because it, the prayer was so well known mm. just for me, it's just as if someone was dying today and you hear our father who art in heaven yeah um it just you know you the for for the Jewish ear of that day they would just immediately uh, roll off the rest of the song in their heart hmm. Hmm. so
1: given the context of their situation are they are they reading are they seeing every story that mark puts through the lens of what they're going through with this fire and is mark is mark purposely crafting his story so that the people will be able to make that parallel very easy for them and that's one of the things i'm wondering as i as i read your book and as i'm reading mark now as we're blogging through it like I'm trying to think of, you know, if I came across a certain story in Mark, whether it's a healing story or the um, story about the demonic, you know, those kind of things. Are the trying to place myself in their shoes, wondering how they're reading these particular texts and if it has a deeper meaning for them.
2: This is my, this is my premise. Yeah, um, and I, you know, I don't know that there's any way to absolutely prove one way or the other. Mm. Um, but when I find myself in the storm in my life, yeah, and I turn to the text of Mark, I find that the sequence of the stories and the way that they're told um, helps helps still the terror of my heart, yeah. Sure. And I therefore have a tend. I, I tend to believe that uh, that the the Jewish Christian community in Rome would have yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, one of the one of the things that I, I also open up in the book is how we've we've not understood because we've not understood our Jewish mother enough. We've not understood how in the text of Mark the evangelist uses water, mm-hmm. and that um, water in Mark, not every association of water in the Gospels, but water in Mark uh, is the place of our deepest anxiety. Mm-hmm. The Jewish people of the first century saw this line of water from the springs of Caesarea Philippi to the Sea of Galilee to the Jordan River to the Red, to the Dead Sea um, as a line of troubling water and potentially the place where the demons were. Yeah. So why does Mark make water so prominent? Because uh, the Jewish Christians of Rome don't need to be <laughs> they don't need to be told about how how flowing water yeah flowing water is a problem yeah hmm. and why flowing water because when the great flood happened uh, we we tend to know that the vault over the heavens opened but if you read the text closely hmm. the vault underneath the earth also opened and the water came from both directions and hmm. wiped everything away so when Jews see flowing water in that day, they go, well, is the vault under the earth? Is it secure? Why, where is, is, is there air coming in? Is there, is there a hole in the, uh, what, what's creating this flowing? Hmm. So they, we uh, re- read the, the Jewish scriptures. They, they pray often for still water, hmm. not flowing water. Yeah. Like the Psalms. Yeah. Hmm. So, um, Mark can use flowing water, and all of this flowing water through Israel, and brings it and puts it in his gospel text because they, because Jewish Christians know they're being invited to go down into the place of their deepest anxiety that they they are in uh, they they are in a very wild and treacherous outer place for themselves.
1: Mm. And this is such a a unique way to I feel like it's almost like a wrestling match with my brain because, uh, you know, having gone through um, seminary and Bible college and stuff, and, you know, just, you learn to read the gospels a certain way. And when you, you bring all this context into each, each one of the different gospels and you uh, just brings so much more life to it. Um, And it's just such a interesting way to read it. Um, Going forward, like, what would you, what would you say is a, is a good way for people to maybe become stronger, deeper readers of the gospels. Like, um, you know, a lot of my listeners are going to open up their Bible in the morning and they're going to have their morning devotion, so to speak, and they're going to, you know, take away something and they're going to bring it with them in their day. Um, and that's fine. But like, what's, what do you think is a, maybe a, a more intentional way that we could read the gospels given to this journey that you, you shared with us? Like, how can we bring that into our everyday
2: lives? Uh, great question, Glenn. Uh, yeah. I, mean, I, I don't want to just uh, be so self-serving as to uh, invite people to pick up um, heart and mind. Sure. Uh, you know, it, it, it's what this work has done has given um, a depth to every word in the text. And I know people will say, can I just go read the text and get this? <laughs> I don't know that you can't yeah um because you you need to understand the meta story that's going on on underneath yeah but i think that if you were to take heart and mind um and use a little bit of it and then sit in prayer with the text the text the text in you will begin to open up in a new way that's good that's good and you uh
1: you have a nice in each chapter you have a nice section just to let my listeners know that there's yeah, you open up each chapter with the background of, the, of that particular gospel. And I found that particularly helpful in just preparing for some of the blog posts for Mark and stuff because I've I probably read that opening section four or five times. And then when I, I go and I read a section of Mark, I try to read it, like I said earlier, with that framework in my mind. And it does bring a much different light to the text. So um, I think we might do a giveaway of some sort with heart and mind. So we might try to get it. In right. hands. Yeah, I think that would be a lot of fun. Great. Yeah absolutely uh but hey we're just about out of time this is about 12 o'clock and um i know you've got places to go as well um, you're going to spain so you have a, a pretty long trip coming up um when is your new book coming out just so we can know and where we can go and find
2: it um the the newest book is yeah. returning from camino okay and that came out in may it's and out already okay it's out, it's out already yeah sadly my hope had been that i would be able to get the advent christmas book done this year yeah Um, it looks like that's probably gonna not come out until about this time next year okay Um, but the 13 days of christmas as uh the the great christmas story um as the story of growth and transformation in christ
1: that'll be great oh we'll look for that next year
2: for sure thank thank you glenn absolutely uh, Dr. Shaya, thank wonder, you. Yeah. I don't know when you might so choose to uh, to air this whenever is fine, but know that I will be taking your listeners and you with me as I walk across bank. Uh, Thank and you so especially much. Especially in those places of great grace. I'll be praying grace to all of you. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate your that. And,
1: and we all do. Uh, Dr. Shia, thank you so much for your time. And um, maybe we'll have you back on to talk about that Christmas book next year. Mm-hmm.
2: It's always an honor. Thanks, Glenn. Take care.
1: Thank you so much, sir. Bye-bye.
0: Hey, thanks so much for dropping by. It was great to have you here for week number one of Instant Replay. Real quick, a couple of reminders. Number one, if you could, uh, do me a favor and head over to iTunes or your podcast listening app of choice and uh, give the What If Project a rating. And maybe even drop a comment. Uh, The more ratings the podcast has, the better chance that the algorithms will kind of work in its favor so that more and more people will see it. And the second thing I wanna remind you of is that I'll be announcing a new online discussion group that's gonna be kicking off the season of Lent. Uh, So stay tuned for that. The last group we had met in September through November, and it was an amazing experience. So if you want in on this, I will be announcing it here in the podcast also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and all across all the places on the interweb. So if you went in on that discussion group, uh, stay tuned. I will be announcing it. There will be a sign-up. It's going to be a lot of fun making some big changes to it this time around. Uh, so I think it's going to be really enjoyable for whoever decides to jump in. So thank you again for dropping by, and uh, we will catch up next week for week two of Instant Replay. Bye-bye. Thank you.